So let me ask you a question. And before I do, in case you're worried, we are going to be having communion today. Uh, we're just going to have it at the end today rather than uh, halfway through as we usually do. So here's for the question. What is it that shapes how you live each day? What is it that most shapes how you live each day? You know, you have some days where it's just getting through. You start and you do a whole bunch of stuff and then it's time for bed and you feel like, well, nothing's really guided. I've just kind of been on autopilot. I've been on routine. I've just been trying to survive. You know, there are days like that. But there's also those moments where we're choosing what we're going to do, what we're going to throw our time into, what we're going to throw our energy into, what our, our thoughts are going to be concerned about. What is it that shapes that for you? You know, I have some days when I'm looking for pleasure. And, uh, and it could be that I've come home and I'm wanting to unwind. You know, I just want to chill out and I want to watch something on telly. And so I'm browsing through, and you can insert here your streaming provider of choice, and I'm browsing, and I just want something that's going to be really fun. You know, I just want a nice movie or a good TV show that's going to be good fun to watch. And I'm browsing, and I'm browsing. Has anyone else ever been there? And just, oh, that doesn't, or you might be at the other end of the spectrum where it's like, you know there's something on there that you just can't wait to watch. In fact, you may be inclined to binge watch it over a weekend. It's like, man, can't, can't wait. But whatever you're, whether you're satisfied or unsatisfied, the energy is, I want to relax, I want to chill out. I'm searching for pleasure. And for you, maybe it will be, more, more be a case of looking at a bookshelf. You know, what's a book that I want to read? Um, maybe you found one, maybe you haven't. For you, it might be planning a holiday or thinking about when you're going to play golf or frisbee golf or basketball. Basketball stopped being pleasurable for me a long time ago, let me tell you. But, but coaching is fun. So for everyone, it looks a little bit different. But there's thought, there's time, there's energy going into what is it that I want to do? What is it that I'm pursuing that I think will make me feel happy, I think will make me feel relaxed, I think will make life really fun and engaging? Uh, and so we, we do that. We spend some time, we spend some energy, we put some thought into the pursuit of pleasure. Some days I crave a bit of peace. And it's not so much what I'm chasing, it's almost what I'm hiding from, <laughs> what I'm running away from, what I want to avoid, what I want to just put to the side. Um, and sometimes they're those things that kind of weigh on me, those stresses, those burdens, those deadlines, that uh, difficult conversation, that doubt, did I do that well? There's, there's stuff going on inside and I just want to push that away for a moment. Have you ever been in that space? And you want distraction, you want medication, you want consolation. You want to deal with some of that heaviness in the heart. And it might not be something that you're thinking about actively, but there's something that you're carrying deep down in your soul which is affecting the way you go about your day. Well, whether you're about the pursuit of pleasure or whether you're running away from pain or heaviness or whatever shape that might take, uh, we're in the last message of our series called Understanding the Time. And in this series, God in his goodness has preserved for us a record of how Jesus answers his disciples' questions about what's going to be happening from the moment that they're in right then, 2,000 years ago at the Mount of Olives, to the time where Jesus returns at the end of the age. And as Jesus answers their questions, he's not about satisfying their curiosity. Uh, so they're asking about what's going to be happening in the future, and Jesus just doesn't want to fill in the blanks for them so they can go, oh, okay, that's interesting. He's not about just answering all of the questions that they may have because it would be nice to know. 
And in fact, as we've gone through Matthew 24, uh, I don't know about you, but I almost have more questions than answers. Oh, so, so it's going to be like that. But then what about this? And, and so more and more questions tend to arise when you read the answers that Jesus gives. But satisfying curiosity is not his agenda. And Jesus isn't about proving his own sovereignty. Yeah, he's not about proving that he knows what's going to happen into the future, that history is under his control, although both of those things are true. It's not his main goal to establish who he is, so that when these things happen, we say, oh, well, see, Jesus was right. He really is in charge. Well, that's, that's our experience. We look back in history and say, wow, that's exactly what Jesus said. But that's not actually what Jesus is most concerned about. He's telling his disciples... And all who will receive his message, you and I today, how to live until his return. He's telling us what should shape our days. He's telling us about the reality which should shape how we live each and every day. A reality that is bigger than just kind of the humdrum of routine. A reality that is bigger than the pleasures that we so often throw ourselves into pursuing. A reality that's much bigger than some of those experiences that shape us and that sometimes we want some peace from we will want to escape from. So let's dive into the conclusion of Jesus' message as he applies the reality of his second coming to the daily lives of his followers. That's his main focus in Matthew 24 and 25. So as we get to the end of Matthew 24, and as I always say, I love it when you are able to read along in your own Bibles because the more familiar you are with them, the better it is for you. Um, but I'll also have the words on the screen for us. We're going to dive into the end of Matthew 24 as Jesus now begins his application of all the things that he's been saying about his return. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But... If that wicked servant says in his heart, my master's delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with drunkards, so that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and at a, an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and will assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is setting up a contrast in this little story that's really, really important for us to understand today. And it's really important not only for that story, but for the three stories he's now going to tell to really drive home his message. He's going to tell three more stories, all with the same basic focus, each a little bit different, adding a little flavour that the others don't have, but each with the same basic purpose. So before we get on to those three stories, what's the big picture that Jesus is wanting to paint as he tells this story at the end of Matthew 24? You've got this true servant, a servant who is faithful and wise, and you've got a false servant who is wicked. And this true servant shows his genuineness by what he does. He shows that he is a wise and faithful servant because he acts wisely and faithfully. He serves in the tasks he was entrusted with. However, the wicked servant demonstrates his wickedness by what he does. He abandons his duties. He uses the position that he holds, the resources that he's been given, for his own purposes. And when the master returns, he will treat each of those servants justly. The servant who is faithful and wise and the servant who is wicked will both get what they justly have earned. 
And notice the punishment for the wicked servant includes being assigned a place with the hypocrites. I don't know what you imagine that might be, but Jesus has just been speaking about hypocrites in chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel. Those are the people who make a show of being religious, but who don't actually love and serve God. So there's that contrast that Jesus is setting up between one type of servant and another. And he's highlighting the different outcomes for each person. Now stop and think about who Jesus is talking to here. And if you've been following the story of Matthew's gospel, you'll you'll remember that Jesus is with his disciples. And we don't know everyone who was in that group. Certainly it includes the 12. There may have been others who were with them on this occasion. And we don't know among that wider group how many of them were sincere followers of Jesus and how many would fall away. But we certainly know among those 12 closest disciples, the ones who he spent most of his time training, teaching, investing in, we know that one of them was not the real deal. One of them, whose name was Judas, uh, would go on to betray him in the days ahead. And as Jesus has a meal with these close followers of his uh, in the next couple of days, and as he announces that one of them was actually not a true servant, one of them was actually a betrayer, they don't all turn around and say, I bet it's Judas. There's always been something fishy about that guy. Just something not quite right. Doesn't seem really one of us. Do you remember what they do? They're shocked. And they go, is it me? No one could spot the genuine from the wicked servant. And so Jesus' stories here have real potency. It's not easy to spot a wicked servant when the master is in the room. Have you ever noticed that? Think about a workplace situation. Don't people act a little bit differently when the boss is around? Not easy to spot a wicked servant when the master's in the room. It's what they do when they think the master isn't around that shows their true colours. And as Jesus is teaching his followers how to live until he returns, that's the point that he's really driving home. So I'm going to read through chapter 25. We don't often read such uh, a lengthy um, uh, text, but these stories all build on one another and they're all reinforcing that same basic point. So I'd love for you to listen with the reality in mind of who Jesus is speaking to. This group of people who think they are all together following Jesus and yet one is not genuine. And then we're going to think about how that applies to us today. Let's begin at Matthew 25 and verse 1. At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. And when the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night there was a shout, Here's the groom! Come out and meet him! Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they'd gone to buy some, the groom arrived and those who were ready went in and banquet and the door was shut. Later the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, Truly I tell you, I know you. 
Therefore be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. Confronting story. Be ready. Don't wait till it's too late, because once he comes, there's no time to get ready. Jesus continues. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. And his master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. You have what is yours. His master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant, if you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take that talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to every has more will be given and who will have more than enough but from the one who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him and throw this good-for-nothing servant out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth it's a well-known parable of the talents but Jesus doesn't stop there he rolls straight on into his next story when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick of me. I was in prison and you visited me. But then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. 
sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me? And then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and, and not help you? And he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment. That's embarrassing. But the righteous to eternal life. Funnily enough, that's the pizza people. There you go. Just to, just to affirm, it will be happening. Sobering stories, aren't they? Really sobering stories. Even a bit of comic relief from somebody forgetting to turn their phone off isn't enough to distract us from the seriousness of what Jesus is saying in these stories. And how are you feeling at the end of those? How does it make you feel? Not to just stop and pull them apart. Seriously. There we go. I'm going to silence this thing once and for all. Power off. There we go. Nobody ever rings me. Ever. Except pizza companies, apparently. So, what is Jesus trying to do as he tells story after story after story? Four stories in total. What's he wanting to produce in your heart and mind as you sit and listen to that? Is he doesn't pause, as he doesn't kind of unpack and tell you what all the little details mean. He just rolls on from one into the next, into the next into the next. Imagine yourself sitting on the side of that Mount of Olives listening to Jesus. What's going on in you? Imagine if you were Judas. How's that feeling in the moment? And what's it meant to do in us today? I've got to admit, I've gotten it wrong a bunch of times as I've read these stories. Let me show you how I've gotten it wrong. So you could hear the story of the ten virgins and think, okay, I need to make sure I'm ready when the master arrives. I won't have time when, when he appears to get ready. I'll need to be ready in advance. I can't rely on anyone else. It's up to me to be prepared to have everything I need. And that's true, kind of, depending on what you think it means to be prepared. So we go on into the next one, the parable of the talents, and we could easily think the way I prepare myself is to use what I've been entrusted with for the things that he wants me to use them for. I've got to make sure I use what I've been given effectively for his purposes. I need to be productive, right? I mean, those guys, five was doubled. Two was doubled. I need to be kind of like that. What's God given and put in my hands? What am I going to use for his kingdom's sake? And then I could go into the story of the sheep and the goats and that puts a slightly different focus on. It's not so much what I use and what I've been entrusted with as where the needs are. Who's around me? Who am I supposed to be helping? Who are these brothers and sisters of Jesus that I'm meant to be treating well? And if I want to be blessed by Jesus when, he's re when he returns, I better make sure that I'm a blessing to his brothers and sisters now. And if you think Jesus is teaching you how to be ready for in these stories you're going to get to work man i don't want to wait till it's too late like those foolish virgins i want to start doing this now god what have you given me i'm going to use it who's around me i'm going to help them i want to make sure that i'm ready for jesus's return i don't want to be like that wicked servant who said my master is delayed and then find out whoops now i'm in trouble i want to make sure i do what i need to do and that preaches man i'd use that that story guys dip into your wallets global reach giving you better be given right You've seen the stories. What kind of people get rewarded? Those who serve, those who multiply, those who give. But Jesus is not telling us how to be ready for his return. He's telling us who will be ready. And you need to spot 
the difference. Look back with me to verses 45 and 46 where Jesus says this, and this is what introduces all four stories. At the beginning of that first one he says, who then, not how do you be, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge to give him food at the proper time? Blessed is that person. He's not telling us how to be blessed. He's telling us who will be blessed. And then he goes on and says, but if you are like that wicked one, that person will not be blessed that person will receive punishment. As Jesus looks at his disciple, whom is a betrayer, he says, who is going to be found faithful? Who should be looking forward to me coming back and who should be in fear and trepidation about it? See, the parable of the talents doesn't tell us how to be faithful with what God's given us. It tells us who was proved faithful. Here's two guys who were faithful. Here's one who wasn't. If it was meant to tell us how to be faithful, we'd have more questions than answers. See, what if you really tried your best to multiply the master's money? Maybe uh, you uh, bought some seed and put in a crop and the rains just didn't come and you worked your guts out but you still lost the money. Would you be punished for the results or would you be rewarded for your efforts? And what does it mean to double what you were entrusted with anyway? What have you been entrusted with and how do you double that? What exactly does God want us to do as a result of that parable? And what if you thought, well, you'd invest the, the money in the stock market, but you chose stocks that crashed? Are you going to be punished because you weren't smart enough to choose the ones that went the right direction? How does that, that work anyway? And what about the parable of the sheep and the goats? Is it enough to have helped one or two Christians? Or do you need to have done everything that's on that list? Um, are you meant to only help those who are around you in your immediate area? Because after all, needs today are global, aren't they? We're hearing about everything going on. Does that mean that we are always giving out to those people? And how does that work practically? If working hard with the resources and abilities God gives us to meet the needs that are around us are motivated by our desire for for blessing when Christ returns, is that actually giving anyway or is that just a weird form of taking or investing? Isn't that at odds with loving God and others the way Jesus taught? But if we remember that Jesus isn't actually trying to tell us how to get a reward when he returns and he's not trying to tell us how to avoid punishment when he returns, he's just saying who is the kind of person who is either rewarded or punished? He's answering his own question of who that faithful and wise servant is and contrasting that with the wicked false servant, then these stories make perfect sense. You can tell a true servant of Jesus because they're not waiting for his return to be ready. They want to be ready now. They'll be found prepared. They'll be using the resources God's given to them to further his good work in the world. And he'll be blessing what they do because after all, we can't do anything for eternity anyway. We rely on God to do his work through us. And true servants of Jesus are identifiable because they love. If they see a brother or sister in need, they're not thinking, you beauty, this is my chance to earn a few rewards in heaven. This is going to be excellent. What they're actually thinking is, I love this person and I want to serve them. Clothe them, feed them, be a companion for them, whatever is needed. And the list in Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, isn't something we can tick off and say, well, I've done all of those, you know, one each. I'll be right on the day of judgment. It's not that kind of list. It's examples. This is the way 
God's family treat one another. That's why Jesus says, truly, whatever you did for these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Christians don't see themselves as servants of Christ so that we can earn his approval, we can earn his reward. We serve him because we love him and we love his family. And over the next few days, Jesus is going to go to the cross as he demonstrates his love for us. He'll do the work that earns our salvation. It was never our job. Nothing we could do was ever going to make us right with God. Only Jesus could do that. He'll atone for our sin. He'll conquer sin and death on our behalf. He'll offer us God's forgiveness. He'll make a way to make us new people who are motivated by his love instead of our sin. And as a result of that, we're going to live differently and we'll inherit a kingdom that has been prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. We love God because he loved us. So please don't read these stories as if they are a way for you to figure out how to be ready for Christ's return. Read these stories as Jesus is giving you a gift. Say, you know what? If you'd like to know whether you are ready for my return, if you want to know who is ready for my return, these are the things that you look for. Look at your life. Do you have that sense that you've actually taken the trouble to know whether you are prepared or not? Do you have that sense that you're using what I've given you for my purposes? Do you have that compassion within you that when you see a need, and Jesus is talking specifically among his family, brothers and sisters in Christ, but he's not saying it should stop there, but it is where it starts. And if you're the sort of person that just your heart is so moved, you want to do something for everyone, you can't, but you want to, if that's the who you are, then you're proving that you actually have tasted my grace you've been made new you're not living for sin anymore you're not living for yourself you're actually part of my family it's what's shaping how you live each day it's not the pursuit of pleasure that you're dominated by it's not running away from past hurts or avoiding discomfort that takes up your conscious energy and your subconscious energy it's who you are in christ that sets the tone for everything that you do it flows out of you and whenever you think about the grace that God's given you, it's no chore to serve him. It's just who you are. So when we engage in something like Global Reach Month, we're not trying to kind of motivate uh, our church family somehow to give more and do more in the world. All we're saying is, hey guys, isn't it awesome? The same God who reached down into your world to reveal himself, uh, to redeem you, to bring you into his family, to give you his grace in so many different flavours and expressions, is also at work in us to do that for others. And we get to be involved. And it's who we are. I don't have to stand up here and give some sort of motivational speech. I don't have to convince you with fancy charts and, you know, this is how it all works and, you know, you can change the world. You know, it's just as soon as we have an opportunity to do good, we do it. That's what Christians do. How privileged are we to be a part of that? If you find yourself, though, as we've talked about Global Reach, kind of feeling a bit disinterested, um, and if you find yourself in your daily life mainly concerned with pleasures or with dealing with your hurts or whatever it might be, or has been in the routine of life, that's when this gift of Jesus might be time to step back and say, have I received this grace? Have I accepted this new life that he's given me? Am I really a new person or is what I'm seeing in my life actually like everything else that I'm seeing around me. What a gift to have that opportunity to, to make that decision and to be prepared, ready for when he returns.
In a few moments we're going to have communion. And it's that time when we remember what Jesus has done so that we can be ready for his return and we can be the people who live in the ways that these stories illustrate. And I want to invite you to, if you have received new life in Jesus, if you're the kind of person that was being described as that faithful and wise servant, the sheep rather than the goats, uh, the, the wise virgin rather than the foolish virgin, a virgin and so on, then take and eat and remember who it is that got you there and be grateful. And if you find that you can't identify yourself in those stories positively, but maybe the negative ones tend to be more where you're at, know that forgiveness is right there for you. It's right there. Everything's been done. Just accept it from Jesus. Accept that fresh start in him. Let him make you new. It's not a once-off event. It's something that happens all the time as we continue to find our life in him. Let's pray. Father, as we've um, gone through August, it's so um, fantastic to celebrate the partnerships that we have around the world with people who are wanting to make known the grace of Jesus, who are doing what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24 when he said that his gospel, the good news of what he's done to save people, will go out to the whole world. Lord, we want people in the schools around us. We want people right throughout the city of Perth and the state of WA. We want people right throughout the world to know the grace of Jesus, to be made new by him, to live differently as a result and to be confident that when he returns we'll be found ready because he's made us ready. So God, would you enable us to look at ourselves in a moment of, I guess, introspection, to examine our lives and ask ourselves, are we living like people who have been made ready for Jesus? Are we living as people who have nothing to fear from judgment because he has forgiven us and given us eternal life? And if we're not sure that those words from Jesus describe well our lives, would you enable us to take this moment to come before you and to remember your promise that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and you forgive us and you purify us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to try harder. We don't have to do more. We don't have to give more. We just come to Jesus. And because of Jesus, we do everything that we do out of love.